You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show... Everyone wants to talk about, oh, a labor shortage. Not one hour of, of time has been lost on the account of labor. It has all been at the railroads, that these giant BlackRock-owned corporations that buy back their own shares and take COVID bailouts, they were the ones that stopped your rail shipments. From the Valley Labor Report, Paul Lindsay makes the case for rail nationalization. We're frontline workers. We're always going to be needed because who else is going to put out the product that comes? If we don't have enough workers to put it out, how do they sell to their customers in their community? They can't. You can't sell it out the back room. Walmart and Kroger workers discuss the added stress of working during the holidays on the latest episode of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. The company is telling their employees as well as dealers that they have offered us a John Deere type of agreement, which is far from the truth. From We Rise Fighting, a report on UAW Locals 180 and 807 on strike in Racine, Wisconsin. I look at the Complex uh, Klan and I call it an employer's association. And we wrap up this week with author Chad Pearson discussing his new book, Capital's Terrorists, on the Workers' Beat podcast. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Still listening to the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. Uh, Paul Lindsay is a a uh, railroad worker, a member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, a Teamsters affiliate, and on the steering committee of Railroad Workers United, an interunion cross craft solidarity caucus of railroad labor. Paul, you were talking about the contract that was negotiated with, you know, I say quote the help of President Biden and Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh that gave you, and, and so the things that you had laid out was that it gave you three unpaid days off if you were sick that had to be scheduled 30 days in advance, <laughs> could only happen on certain days of the week, and that they wouldn't discipline you if you were literally in the hospital and they were able to, and I didn't I didn't realize this until you just told me because I my impression of the deal was that it was 
it, it was like only marginally better and that was that was the issue with it but you laid out this uh this part of the contract that is actually a step backwards that would allow um that would allow them to that would allow the the rail companies to call you in even more short notice than they do already and so you know there's just all sorts of problems with this contract uh was what uh this you know negotiated agreement is there anything was there anything else that that you felt was important to share uh about the contract uh about why you know uh your uh sisters and brothers in the union and and in other unions voted it down well so the two provisions on self-protecting pools and automatic markup rules uh, it laid out basically a foundation allowing for this, but it didn't give us any real details. It says that, oh, we're going to allow for this, and after you sign the contract, well, we'll go ahead and negotiate and bargain about it then. So mm. we still don't actually know what it is. It's just kind of a blank check. Um, and yeah, the railroads have shown many times in the past that you give them an inch, they take a mile. There's not really any integrity uh, in this outfit. So then the, uh, so now that, you know, I think everybody has voted now a majority, uh, uh, you know, unions representing the majority of labor have voted it down. Um, and the strike dates are all set for December the 9th. So, uh, sketch out the possible paths forward for us. Okay. So with that strike date being there, everyone wants to focus on the strike date, but Unfortunately, Congress has made it very clear they're not going to allow uh, employees to take ownership of their lives. They would um, almost surely force us back to work one way or another. They can force binding arbitration. They could force a contract and just say this is the law. Um, but, you know, one thing I would have if there's any congressman that actually listened to your podcast or uh, your show here, um, they also could offer us a favorable contract if they so chose. But right. um, unfortunately, they never seem doesn't matter which party. Uh, no one truly seems to support labor. They can talk about it. Uh, they, they can talk about it at our at our conventions. Mm -hmm. um, but really, when it comes down to it, it really seems like this whole situation was just pushed, kick the can down the road until after the election, because now they can force us back to work. Right. And regardless of who whose name is on that bill, the election already happened. So there'll be no repercussions for it. Um, that'll that's so one way or another, they will most likely force us back to work. And everyone knows how devastating a work stoppage uh, could be for the industry. And we've been talking about this for months especially several months ago when we thought it was actually legitimately going to happen. Um, but what about when the companies themselves instigate the work stoppage? So when the strike was about to happen, when we were just a couple days uh, before it, actually for almost a week leading up to it, the railroads themselves started embargoing customers and shutting intermodal ports and tying down trains early, shutting down mm -hmm. the economy to try to twist the government's arm into action and no one wants to talk about that everyone wants to talk about oh a labor shortage not one hour of of time has been lost on the account of labor it has all been at the railroads that these giant 
BlackRock-owned corporations that buy back their own shares and take COVID bailouts, they were the ones that stopped your rail shipments for the first few, for the days leading up to the strike. The fact that you have a dedication to your brothers and sisters, that you'd be willing to come on a show like ours after working a long shift, just to spread the word. Uh, so thank you for all you're doing. Sure. Thank you for, yeah, railroad workers, you y'all are y'all are the backbone of the country um you deserve what you're asking for and so much more and we we're going to do anything we can to uh keep the pressure up and spread the word and uh just wishing y'all love and solidarity in the fights ahead awesome well uh take care and hope to see you again absolutely You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored, episode 260. We decided to talk to an old friend of the show, Cynthia Murray, who is one of the founding members of what used to be known as Our Walmart and is now United for Respect. Cynthia is still working at Walmart and still working to change it. And Walmart workers have had a particularly hard fight on their hands to be treated decently through the pandemic. We talk about all that and more. We recorded this conversation before a longtime Walmart manager opened fire on his co-workers in the break room at a Chesapeake, Virginia Walmart the day before Thanksgiving, killing six people. Lorenzo Gamble, Brian Pendleton, Kelly Pyle, Randall Blevins, Tanika Johnson, and a 16-year-old boy whose name was withheld because of his age. In response to the shooting, United for Respect member and Walmart associate Tanika Hightower released a statement saying, in part, Quote, for too many Walmart associates across the country, clocking in to work at Walmart is fatal because the stores they work at are unsafe, the conditions unhealthy, and the executives they work for have not taken any meaningful action to protect them. While we didn't get to discuss this incident with Cynthia, much of what we did discuss covers these same issues. Can I have you start out, Cindy, by introducing yourself to our listeners who haven't uh, talked to you as much as I have? Well, hello, everyone. My name is Cynthia Murray. I am a 22-year current Walmart associate in Laurel, Maryland, and a founding member of United for Respect, which is UFR. I work in the fitting room, which I answer all the calls that come into the building. I help take care of the customers that are in the fitting room that come and try on their clothes. And, you know, um, most of us are like a family at Walmart, us workers that work there together. So we usually help each other. And that's what I do for Walmart. I've been there 22 years, but I have been active in trying to help Walmart workers across the country. Together, we build an organization, United for Respect, and we have helped workers across the country, especially a hard time for us during the pandemic in the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, that question of being essential workers, right? And in the early days, there were all of these, you know, thank you, essential workers and applause and talking about you being heroes and all of that. And then it's kind of just gone away. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it has just, it's gone. Like they've taken the shields down. They've stopped giving people masks, which I think it's, I think they should still have. I see people that come into our store and you think about it. They're coming to the pharmacy. 
they need to come get their medication because they're sick. But at the same time, if they don't come in with a mask and ask for one, you don't even have one to give them. I mean, you see how many people are still sick and are still becoming sick? So this is what our board, that's what the pandemic board would do. It would still look hard at the situation and how it's going and what we still really truly need. Yeah, with all these, um, all this talk about the sort of great resignation and people quitting their jobs and things like that, have you seen a lot of turnover at the Walmart where you work? Yes, but Walmart's always had a high turnover rate. That's true. Always. You think it's been more than than usual? Yes. I, it's really has become, I don't even have the right word for it. It really has become hard. When COVID hit, you know, a lot of workers became sick. I mean, and they were sick. I got sick. I was sick for almost a month. And, you know, I don't think I'm that unhealthy. And so for me to stay sick that long, and I mean, even the younger ones that become sick, even people with not with um, high health risk, you know, I worried every day that I would come home and bring it to my son or my husband. And I think the high turnover rate right now is hard to get people there. I think workers are, first of all, what do they have? Walmart isn't offering them anything. I mean, you don't even have a backup plan if you get sick. I mean, and then making billions, come on. People are looking for a job that are going to sustain them. We're frontline workers. We're always going to be needed because who else is going to put out the product that comes? If we can't, if we don't have enough workers to put it out, how do they sell to their customers in their community? They can't. You can't sell it out the back room unless it's through the internet. And some people don't have that type of access where they can go to the internet and just order whatever it is that that you couldn't find in the store. There's a whole lot of people that come in the store and they would rather be in a store shopping than having to order online where some people just don't. And I think the reason we can't keep workers is a positive thing. It's because we have no benefits to offer them. I work for a billion dollar company, a 22 year Walmart associate. I only make $16.90 an hour after 22 years. They should be ashamed of themselves. So, I mean, if they stop to look at that, that's their bottom line. You have nothing to offer your workers. And, and then they're not treated the best that they, I mean, come on. They're overworked because there's hardly any workers. It got to be fixed. And the only persons that can fix it is the people who are holding the wealth and not putting it back into their stores. That was Cynthia Murray, founding member of United for Respect and Walmart worker. All right, welcome back to another edition of We Rise Fighting Labor podcast. We bring you today's labor news, history, and analysis from the U.S. and around the world. This is a podcast you listen to with your fellow workers organizing on the shop floor. This is a podcast you listen to before walking into your union meeting. As always, I am Rick Urrutia. I am flying solo on the news tonight. 
Brian's going to be joining us for an interview with President Yasin Mahdi from Local 180 in Racine, Wisconsin, along with Diana Garza Valencia, a community activist in Racine, Wisconsin. They're going to be giving us updates of the strike against CNH Industrial, and we will get to that right after the news. take us from here. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Brian. And you know what, uh, President Mahdi and Sister Diana Garza, my question is exact is exactly that. Um, what kind of update can you give us? You know, what do things look like on the ground in Racine? Um, how can people be in solidarity with the strike? What's what's going on? Can you just give us a sense of what's up? Yes. So I'd say this, the, the weather started to change. We currently have tents up now. Uh, the last time I spoke with you guys, we did not uh, have anything uh, set up in regards to cold weather, but we, we currently do. So we have reduced the picketing hours from six to four hours. Also had a dealer call and state that, you know, they have been waiting for product for a while, uh, specifically uh, a certain type of tractor that they have been waiting on that they hadn't received. Um, also, I guess uh, it was a tractor that they did receive that was, in their words, uh, had a lot of issues. So from my understanding, the company is telling their employees as well as dealers that they have offered us a John Deere type of agreement, which is far from the truth. So when we had a conversation with this dealer and informed him of what was really going on, he was, he was shocked because, you know, what allegedly what the company has been saying is, is way different from what's actually going on. So All right. Thanks. Sister Diana, You've been involved uh, in various uh, labor community activity over the years, and now you're helping UAW 180 and, of course, 807 on strike. This last Saturday, you were involved in a art build, making car toppers, uh, running around Racine for flying squadrons to the picket lines and a whole bunch of other work. So we just wanted to see what you're up to. Please let us know and how uh, folks can help out. Yes, hi. My name is Diana Garza Valencia. Um, and I was born and raised here in Racine. And so I have a invested interest with the J Case workers and UAW 180. My um deceased uncle, Gilbert Garza, he was uh, a proud member of uh, 180. So I stand strong with them. I really do. This is personal to me because as a community leader, you know, one of the things I I um I emphasize is equal pay, um, paid sick days and family medical leave and, and you know, just health care. Um, and that's what they're, they're, they're asking. So um, I'm able to go out to the community and say, you know, we, ha we have to come together to support and to, to unify, to um, be in solidarity with uh, 
are are people that are on strike. It's is a friends and family of a racing community. For Solidarity Day, uh, December seventeenth, um, we we need um, still assistance at uh, making sure the message gets out um, that uh, we're going to host the car caravan. And uh, it's exciting to actually have already 30 cars, and it's growing. Uh, this is just locally um, from Racine. Um, but our hopes are to have uh, vehicles come in from the different states, from the different unions. Things that we need um, are, are to make sure that um, we support our, our, uh, the strikers with donations of gift cards, of toys for children and any, any type of food for families, you know, um, it's really important that um, we don't allow um, CNH to be the Grinch of Christmas for our community. So we're looking forward to being there on December 17th, We Rise Fighting, and we'll be supporting this uh, through various means on our own Facebook page, We Rise Fighting, as well as sharing this with our friends and fellow workers that we've interviewed on the show, and we will be there on the ground the week before December 17th to build uh, the action and to be there with our fellow workers to win a just contract that they deserve. Solidarity. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm here today talking to Dr. Chad Pearson, who wrote this wonderful book, Capitals Terrorists. Is this your latest book, right? That's correct, yes. What's the difference between this one and other accounts of labor history? First of all, thank you for having me. I've been a labor historian since uh, since graduate school, really, and much labor history focuses, of course, on the struggles of working class people, looking at unions and non-union workers alike. And I've been interested in the people at the top of society and how they have sought to maintain control. So I'm primarily interested in union busting, strike breaking, blacklisting. And in my latest book, I look at all sorts of extra legal techniques, including whippings and kidnappings and drive out campaigns. And so I really wanted to get, I really wanted to understand the folks who, who got their hands dirty in these, these contexts of, of labor of suppression efforts. Of course, we know police, state militia, uh, occasionally federal troops did this, but in my study, I look at the actual employers and managers and how they, you know, we tend to think of these people as sort of proper and uh, more inclined to say, go to the opera, hang out at these exclusive clubs, which is all true, but they also had a thuggish side. So I look at their, their thuggish side beginning from the, um, the reconstruction period that is right after the Civil War up through about World War I. We don't ever think about the bosses actually being in the Ku Klux Klan or in these terrorist groups. That's we right. Think, we think they may have been behind it somewhere, but in your book, they're actually there. They're there. That's right. That's right. And uh, I look at the uh, Ku Klux Klan and I call it an employer's association. That is the first Ku Klux Klan during the Reconstruction period. And I recognize that whites across class lines join the Klan. But the question becomes who called the shots? And the folks who called the shots tended to be these downwardly mobile plantation owners who lost this land, lost uh, access to credit in the wake of the dramatic general strike of roughly 4 million 
former slaves, as Du Bois puts it. And so they asked the question, how did they maintain their power? And they formed uh, clans and other vigilante groups with the intention of keeping the former slaves in their place, right? Shut up and take it and work. And to do that, they kidnapped, they whipped, and they drove out Northern teachers, Republican teachers, who sought to influence the, uh, the black masses and offer them educational opportunities. I always thought that Ronald Reagan invented the idea of a coalition of rulers and racists. And that was his uh, electoral coalition starting in, in his first term of office. It was very clear that he was putting together a coalition of rulers and racists, mm -hmm. which is the predominant way of describing the electoral coalition of the Republican Party today. In that regard, one has to see that it's the rulers that are in charge, the racists that are doing the dirty work. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, sounds a lot like what you're writing about in your book. Although you're writing about outright terrorism as opposed to electoral coalitions. Do you see any parallels? Yeah, um, in fact, and I think, you know, the, the folks I write about um, were in some cases rulers and racists, right? One of the key figures I explore is a guy named N.F. Thompson, who came from a slave-owning family in Middle Tennessee. Then he uh, participated in this uh, civil war with uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and then he was a leading Klansman in Reconstruction. And then, fast forward to the turn of the century, he was an organizer and leader of the Citizens Industrial Association of America. So you see that. More recently, into the 1940s and 50s, you have Vance Muse. Who I, I'm sure you might have heard of, who was the um, uh, member of the Christian Americans, uh, an anti-union uh, right to work campaign. And he talked about how the CIO was a real problem because it united uh, blacks and whites together. And uh, he worked with another guy named John Henry Kirby from uh, East Texas, who was also quite racist and exploitative. And so uh, these folks were involved in establishing the modern right to work movement, um, where they appealed to racism, they appealed to anti-Semitism, and were able to um, achieve some victories uh, in that regard. And so Reagan certainly made a big impact in terms of, you know, rhetorically, um, you know, uh, appealing to this, the supposed grievances of, of, of white racists, while at the same time, he knew who buttered his bread, and he was really working on behalf of the, uh, the, the ruling class. And so I see, I see parallels. Capitals Terrorists by Dr. Chad Pearson. You should get it, and you should read it. It's, uh, it's a different approach and a better approach to understanding What's happened in American labor history? Do you want to say anything in summary, Dr. Pearson? Uh, no, just thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a great honor to talk with you. I enjoy your show very much and delighted to be here. Thank you. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1946. That was the day a general strike erupted in Oakland, California. Workers, mostly women, had been on strike for a month at two downtown department stores. Teamsters honored their picket lines and refused to make deliveries. Infuriated owners of Hastings and Cons demanded their merchandise and turned to the city for help. 
And on this day, police assembled early in the morning to clear the streets of picketers. They attacked strikers, forcing them off the street and setting up a perimeter of machine guns to escort scab delivery trucks through the line. One striker recalled, I was black and blue for six months from their clubs. Outraged, truck drivers, bus drivers, and streetcar operators all stopped, got out of their vehicles, and joined the strikers, quickly filling downtown Oakland. By the end of the day, the city was completely shut down. 142 AFL unions called for a labor holiday in support of the strikers, and now 130,000 workers were on strike in solidarity. UAW member Stan Weir recalled that it was the bus drivers, many just returned from the war, who led the strike. The streets that night had a carnival-like atmosphere. War vets led a march to City Hall to demand the resignation of the mayor and city council for their attempts to break the strike. The general strike quickly forced the administration to stop the scab herding. But local labor leaders were divided over what some considered a near insurrection and called the strike off 54 hours later. The retail workers were left to fight on their own for another five months. But for a few days, workers got a taste of their own power. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs> <laughs>